After the Bodhisattva studied with the leading uh, spiritual teachers of his day and perfected the ability to enter and remain in the highest levels of concentration or jhana, he continued on with ascetic practices having understood that concentration alone or jhana practice does not free the mind. And through his own power of awareness and depth of understanding, he was able to realize the truth and freed his mind from current suffering and the cause or the root of all suffering and thereby became a Buddha. When he first began to share what his understanding was or what he had realized, he formulated the essence of what he had realized and what has now served as the foundation for the teachings of the Buddha in every country or culture that it has gone to. He formulated his teachings into a classification called the Four Noble Truths. It is important to hear the teachings of the Four Noble Truths because it lays out in very, some would say stark, but certainly very clear um, order that this is the problem, this is the cause, this is the solution, and this is the way to arrive at that solution. I was just looking at the front page of my notes and, and just counting the number of times that I have given this talk. It's in the 40s. And the reason is because at one time the Buddha asked his right-hand disciple Sariputta to go somewhere to give a Dharma talk to someone that needed one. And Sariputta went and gave a talk, came back and told the Buddha about it. And the Buddha said, oh, that, that's good, but, you know, that's unfortunate because if you had given them a talk on the Four Noble Truths, they would have realized the truth and freed their mind. Thereafter, Sariputta always included the Four Noble Truths in any talk that he gave. So no matter how many times you have heard the Four Noble Truths, <laughs> this might be your time. <laughs> there's, a, there's a story of uh, Deepama, who was uh, an Indian woman, Bengali woman that was an extraordinary yogi, both in concentration and in liberation through insight. And she came to the States a few times and taught at the Meditation Center of Massachusetts and 
she taught many of the senior teachers uh, in India where she lived. And one time when she was in America, I'm not sure who it was, but a Buddhist teacher from another tradition, Tibetan or Zen, I'm not sure which, came to the meditation center to speak. And she, Deepama was in the audience listening. And she's really kind of like a peasant housewife in India. Um, not very worldly, but very wise. And she was listening to the talk, and it was being translated to her, and she's listening and listening. And halfway through the talk, she said, that person's a Buddhist. <laughs> because she recognized that the foundation of what they were saying was something about the Four Noble Truths, as all teachings are somehow connected to Four Noble Truths. So, What is it that has this magical power, uh, the Four Noble Truths, to, to so arouse our interest and to, to, to make it so easy to recognize, oh, these, this is the teachings of the Buddha, Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth is called Dukkha Satcha, the truth of Dukkha. I leave the word dukkha untranslated as much as I can because it really is not easy to convey the meaning of dukkha in a simple word or even a phrase in English. And the reason is it has a variety, it has an expansive range of meanings. And the first is it means pain, the unsatisfactory, the unpleasant feeling that we feel in the body. You're very familiar with that today. Right? Any kind of pain, aches, pains, heat, itch, you know, just feeling of hunger, feeling of having eaten too much, got to go to the bathroom, whatever. It's some kind of discomfort that we feel in the body. And we know from our personal history and uh, the road ahead that there could be more in store. <laughs> Not just because we're sitting, but because the body grows old, gets sick, dies, and we're there for it, so to speak. So there's some, some sense of urgency to practice now um, it's kind of a rehearsal for the inevitable. But pain is also, Dukkha also refers to the pain, the obvious mental and emotional pain or emotional feelings, unsatisfactory feelings in the mind, like loneliness, anger, fear, 
impatience, depression, jealousy, and the whole, the whole range of both internal unpleasant mental states and those mental states that are in part conditioned by our relationships with others. Jealousy, envy, prejudice, betrayal. The list is endless. And we all know the unpleasantness of many, if not all of those mental states at one time or another in our life. And they seem to just arise with, without, any invi without any invitation. They just arise and we're just kind of battered about by them, enduring them, you know, trying to cure them, get rid of them, fix them, blame somebody for them. And yet, throughout all of our years of experiencing these obvious physical and mental, emotional unpleasantness, unpleasant feelings, it's not immediately clear how to get relief from them. Painkillers are only a temporary and not very satisfactory fix. Okay, this is called dukkha dukkha. The unpleasant, unsatisfactory feelings of mind and body. Dukkha also means the insecurity or the vulnerability we feel because things change often unexpectedly. This means that even as we go about living our life as best we can, that just on the periphery of our vision is the knowledge that our health, our finances, our society, our relationships, our security, our recognition, our renown, our position in families and organizations and societies, all of that is subject to immediate, dramatic, instantaneous change that we may have no warning of and no way of preventing. And the security and the sense of ourself and the stability and the safety and the happiness that relies on things being the way they are is equally vulnerable. This kind of dukkha is not felt like unpleasant feeling. It is the knowledge of insecurity and vulnerability that is in itself uncurable, so to speak, in our ordinary way of life. And so it is the knowledge of dukkha that is so unsettling in a kind of a simmering way. Because it isn't that pleasant 
experiences are unpleasant. That's true. It's that pleasant experiences, good health, adequate financial resources, stable relationships are subject to change. We could say that dukkha is hidden in them because when they change, as they will, we are tossed about, we are vulnerable, we are insecure, we see how dependent we are on conditions outside of our immediate control. And so even though we may now be enjoying pleasant conditions, it's hard to really find a sense of relief in that because we know it's temporary. We know it's fragile. We know we're vulnerable. So there's the unpleasant mental and physical feelings. There's the knowledge of our ubiquitous and pervasive vulnerability and the instability of conditions. There's a third range of experience that is considered dukkha, and it's more existential dukkha. There's two flavors. We're born, and our parents, doing the best they can, provide love, nourishment, comfort, education, whatever they can to keep us happy through our early years, parents or other caregivers. And then they solicit help from relatives and neighbors and society and teachers and, and they hand, the, hand you off to others. And after a few years, they collectively get the message to us, you're on your own. Now we, each one of us, has to take care of ourselves. And we have to take care of this body by feeding it, grooming it, dressing it, cleaning it, you know, bathing it, um, keeping it moving, and just try to keep the body a source of pleasure, more or less. That's quite a lot of, well, that's a full-time job. <laughs> and not only do we have the body to take care of, we have the mind. And we need to keep our mind entertained, distracted, diverted, suppressed, <laughs> repressed, you know, entertained because if it just sits still too long, not doing anything, it gets bored, it gets frustrated, it gets, you know, ambitious, it gets anxious, it gets lonely, it gets, and that's obvious dukkha. And we have to take care of this body and this mind for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, some of us, eight decades, 24-7, day in, day out. And you can't hire or coerce anybody to do it for you. We entrain a lot of support, but we still have to take care of ourselves. And it's a little bit exhausting. 
and we do the best we can, often failing miserably. Nevertheless, we get up in the morning and try again. <laughs> and at the end of these six, seven, eight decades, this whole package gets put in its best clothes, put in a box, <laughs> and it goes into a hole in the ground, or it goes into the hot fire. Now, some would look at that and say, that all that investment of time, money, knowledge, attention, bad investment. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be if all we were doing was carrying this body and mind to the grave, seeking as much pleasure, pleasantness as we could get. That would be, well, a waste of time. But because we have the opportunity to really use this life for tremendous benefit, not just in taking care of ourselves and trying to feel pleasure as much as we can, but in serving ourselves and others to really be as happy as possible without denying the conditions we live with. There's another view of existential unpleasantness, if you will, and that is that we have five sense doors, eyes, ear, nose, tongue, body, and the mind, in Buddhist understanding, considered the sixth sense door. And we have these six sense doors which give us access or access the mind. And the mind is what feels. And so these six sense doors are constantly being bombarded and stimulated with sense contact endlessly, which is forever impacting the mind. The mind is just constantly stimulated and overworked with sense impression. And we can't get away from it. And you have to deal with it as best you can. Some of it's pleasant, a lot of it's unpleasant. The mind just goes on endlessly even when you're sleeping. It's hard to get a good night's sleep. It's only a temporary relief anyway. <laughs> and again, we have to just kind of bear the burden of this existential, it's an existential burden of oppressive burden, I might say, of just carrying around the receptacle of all this stimulation and trying to figure out a way to react or respond to it that is manageable. That's the job, that's our job in life. That's life. Whew. Just talking about it is kind of exhausting. <laughs> but dealing with it is our whole life. Now, when I first heard about First Noble Truth of Dukkha, I was young and energetic. I had my whole life ahead of me, of course. I mean, and I didn't get it, I didn't get suffering. The word was too strong. I felt if I was suffering, then 
I was a failure. I wasn't cutting it. I wasn't making it. There was something wrong with me. But after years and years of sitting on the cushion and looking the truth right in the face, I finally came out of my deeply conditioned denial and acknowledged, hey, you know what? There's some unsatisfactory conditions here. Life offers some unsatisfaction, unsatisfactory experiences. And it's not because I'm inadequate. It's not because I haven't gotten it together. This is the way it is. But I saw through that that it really is difficult. It is a real challenge to get the both the significance and the scope of what the Buddha was talking about in this first noble truth. Because so often we personalize our suffering. We personalize our pain. We personalize our sense of vulnerability and insecurity and we personalize our oh, burden in life. Like it's, oh poor me, it's mine. As if there was someone somewhere else who didn't have the same burden, the same pain, the same condition. We imagine somehow that it should be possible to get it together to feel secure, to get it together to feel good about our practice even. It's like I've been making all this effort for a year or two or ten or decade or two or three and why haven't I got it together yet? This is the way things are. It's not your fault. It's not because you're doing something wrong. This is the very nature of this human life. Huh. Men have their dukkha, women have their dukkha, royalty has their dukkha, paupers have their dukkha, kids, parents, teachers, students, um, everyone experiences dukkha. Monks have their dukkha, nuns have their dukkha, lay people have their dukkha. It's not like there's some place else to go. It's not like you're going to get someone else's conditions and be dukkha free. It's like, this is it. Huh. As long as we personalize experiences of pain, vulnerability, insecurity, burdensomeness in life, we have missed the scope of what the Buddha was pointing to. But as you see in your own practice today, it's almost impossible not to take it personally. It, was just, it just feels like my pain, my failure, my insecurity, my vulnerability, my, oh, I got to deal with this, me. And that is why it is said the first noble truth is to be investigated. It's to be investigated so that we really see the depth, the scope, the impersonality of dukkha. And you know, we live our life 
for the most part, trying to avoid, deny, dismiss, minimize unpleasantness. And so we're just trying to keep one step ahead of dukkha. And when you come on a retreat like this, it is one of the most compassionate things you can do for yourself. And I want to congratulate you and praise you for having the courage to care about yourself enough to do the practice. Nobody can give you this knowledge. And there aren't many who will even point the way. But it's knowledge that if you look and you sustain your looking and you come out of denial and you come out of the fear, you actually see this is the way it is. And when you do, then you can do something about it. And while compassion is often thought to be the action to relieve suffering, the relief isn't always immediate. Because many of us come on retreats. We're doing our practice, and it seems like it gets worse. <laughs> or does to me. You know, we start to see the stuff in our life that is so scary and painful and fearful and shameful and whatever. And we think, well, why, why should I do this? Why don't I just go to the movies? You know, get, get, get into somebody else's head for a while. Well, this package is waiting for us when we come out of the movies. You know, and so we take a look. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of willingness. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of understanding. It takes a lot of trust that this work is beneficial somehow. That's why it's so, it's so easy to be a Buddhist and so difficult to be a Buddha. Because it takes the work. I am grateful for my Dharma teachers who were kind enough to share the teachings of Dukkha with me in a, in a way that invited me to come, take a look, and see for myself. Because until we're introduced, until we're presented with the possibility of freedom from Dukkha, we run from it. We hide from it. We deny it. And in that, we just compound it. And we don't really get uh, relief from it. And so I guess the task of Dharma leaders, Dharma teachers, Dharma sharers, is to point this out in a way that others hopefully can hear and will take up the the investigation to see for themselves that this is the way it is. <clears throat> I don't need to convince you of dukkha. You've been looking at your mind for a week or so, or years. You know. 
The second noble truth is the Buddha's realization of the cause of this dukkha. And he said, the cause of this dukkha is craving. The cause of all this dukkha is attachment, hanging on, clinging, wanting, being identified with experience. You know, for a long time, this just didn't resonate with me. I just didn't get it. How? I'm not hanging on to dukkha. I'm not craving dukkha. What, what's the... What's he mean? Well, it is, the Buddha said, because we crave that we experience dukkha. Now, it's clear that if you want something and you can't get it, you can't have it for whatever reason, that's unsatisfactory. That's unpleasant. It's, there's some suffering there. Okay, wanting, not getting, suffering. Wanting and getting? Now, what's wrong with that? I, for many years, lived with the unexamined assumption that if I could just get what I want, I'd be happy. Doesn't that make sense? Isn't that kind of obvious? If you could get what you want, then you'd be happy. You'd be satisfied. Things would be fine. And the Buddha said, nope. Why? Well, the satisfaction you feel from getting, having, owning, becoming, anything, well, first of all, is pretty brief, the sense of satisfaction. If what you have acquired is alive, it is immediately vulnerable to aging, sickness, and death. If it has any value at all to you, it also has to others and it could be stolen. If it is really valuable, the government will take their slice. <laughs> and you have to insure it, which really doesn't protect it. It just reimburses you for the cost of it when you lose it. If it's digital, it's outdated in six months. <laughs> and so the time, energy, effort, interest, knowledge that you put into pursuing and acquiring anything doesn't last long. The satisfaction from what you get, what you achieve, what you become just doesn't last. You know what? We have all been wanting, pursuing, and acquiring stuff, events, knowledge, uh, recognition, status, <laughs> profit, for a long time. And we've gotten it, too. Where does it end? I'm not saying it isn't good. I'm not saying we aren't enjoying the benefits of it. I'm just saying we're still doing it. When does it end? When are we going to realize, ah, I got enough. I've had enough. That's it. Finished. Over. No more craving. Done. <laughs> it's not tomorrow. It's not at age 50. It's not when you retire. It's not when you get the promotion. When, when does it stop? Well, when you ask the question, then you see that it doesn't stop. Because we know that to acquire and to get, to have, consume, become, just feeds the desire 
for more getting, having, becoming, acquiring. And it's like trying to quench a thirst by drinking salt water. There's an immediate sense of relief. And then the thirst comes back even stronger. The Buddha was very recipient in recognizing what it is that stimulates this extraordinary craving and attachment. And it's clear, and the most obvious, is pleasant experience. Pleasant, both sensual experience, pleasant uh, psychological experiences, emotional experiences, pleasant uh, recognition in our status, our way of life, our lifestyle, the, the pleasantness in how our eyes work, our ears work, our body work. We, we do a lot to keep things pleasant. But the Buddha said we also crave, well he put it in terms of continued existence, like as if this wasn't enough, we want more life. Did you have planning mind today? Now, what is planning mind? Planning mind is imagining you having a better future. You know, doing something in the future that is satisfying. We rarely make plans for unsatisfactory conditions. <laughs> right? And yet, we've lived enough unsatisfactoriness to know making plans doesn't prevent it. So. We make all these plans while we're in the present moment, we're making plans for the future. And when we get there, enjoying that, guess what? We're making plans for another future. Not really fully enjoying and tasting or experiencing what we have now or what we have then, but always looking for more of the same. You can see how, where this is going. <laughs> it's called samsara. Samsara is continued looking for happiness in all the wrong places. And you just keep looking. And when you get there, you realize, no, no, it's not here. It's over there. And you go over there. You get it. And you realize, no, 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 it's not the happiness. It's really over there. And you just, you, we, me, we all just keep revolving around this mind that is insatiably caught in craving, looking for happiness. The Buddha recognized that we also crave non-existence. There are times when we just wish it would all end. It's just like, get me out of here. I've had enough. And yet, Whatever we do, whether we drown ourselves in alcohol, or confuse ourselves with drugs, or keep ourselves so busy that we don't really check in, or whatever it is we do to kind of get out of it, it's clear we don't succeed. We just, more of the same just keeps coming at us. I mean, it's so obvious, once you hear it, once you look, once you look at your own life and you really see what, what you're doing, it is so obvious that this is, this is what we do. 
recent uh, studies have revealed some interesting, uh, well, confirmations, corollaries to the Buddha's Second Noble Truth. Recent studies show that what we think will make us happy doesn't make us as happy as we think it should. What we fear or imagine will make us unhappy also doesn't make us as unhappy as we imagine. Other studies have shown that lottery winners, those who hit the jackpot, their baseline happiness is no greater one year after winning the lottery than it was the day before. Baseline happiness, same. Also discovered that the baseline happiness of those who suffered catastrophic illness or accident, baseline happiness, no different one year after the accident than the day before. Well, we can only conclude that we don't really know what will make us happy and our idea of happiness is independent of conditions. It doesn't matter what's happening. That doesn't determine whether we're happy or not. It's clear that science is coming to understand what the Buddha discovered some time ago, that happiness depends on your mind. Whether you're happy or suffering, in any condition, depends on the mind and the mind's relationship to what's happening. It is said that the second noble truth is to be abandoned. Craving is to be abandoned. The first noble truth is to be investigated or discovered. The second noble truth, craving is the cause of this uh, dukkha, is to be abandoned. Often when people, even scholars or book reviewers, give a a shorthand account of the Buddhist teachings, it goes that far. The Buddha said, life's dukkha. <laughs> life's unsatisfactory, or there's unsatisfactoriness in life caused by craving. Good luck. <laughs> I want to give equal airtime and importance, maybe more importance, because it is more significant to the third noble truth. The Buddha said, even though there is the truth of dukkha and there is the truth that is caused by craving, the third noble truth is that there is an end to dukkha. There's an end to dukkha. All that that was just mentioned, it can come to an end. Sometimes when we hear the teachings of the Buddha, the third noble truth is articulated in very lofty, very esoteric, and very remote appearing terms. It's like enlightenment, nibbana, liberation, freedom, something kind of like out there somewhere in time, space, and certainly in our future, or it's not happening now. But I want to speak about the Third Noble Truth in terms of your experience here today. Because each one of us today has a 
had the opportunity to experience innumerable moments. Duke of free zone. But it's not always easy to see. So let me explain. One way that we see the end of dukkha is when we notice the wandering mind. You know, the mind is wandering. You don't know it. You're off in some la-la fantasy land, something, making plans for better futures. <laughs> and because you've been practicing mindfulness, planting the seed, ha having the intention, making the effort, mindfulness arises, and in seeing that fantasy, in seeing that drifting mind, it often comes to an end. In that moment, and this is the moment to really pay attention to, when the wandering mind comes to the end, to an end, what happens next? There's a moment of just, it ends, relief. In the next moment, there might be picking up another wandering thought or whatever, a judgment or something. But in that immediate succeeding moment, there's a sense of relief. You've put down the burden of constructing that fantasy or carrying that responsibility or finishing that conversation or solving that problem, whatever it is, you just put it down. The mind lets go. And when the mind lets go, there's a sense of relief. That relief is the direction of dukkha-free, of being free of dukkha. Now, when I first started Dharma practice, uh, I was in my mid-twenties. I'd been out of university for a few years. But in university, I had studied engineering back in the days when we didn't have handheld calculators. Everything was done with a slide rule and a lot of mental math a lot of advanced math classes, doing very complex computations, big numbers. So, go to my first retreat, sit down, pay attention, my mind wanders off. When I come to and realize what my mind is doing, it is computing very difficult mathematical formulas or multiplying out four and five digit numbers in my head trying to come up with the answer. You know, and I'm kind of sitting there like da 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 da, -da ratcheting away and going like. <laughs> <laughs> and I noticed this and I said, wait a minute, do I need to be doing this right now? <laughs> I mean, no. I didn't know my mind wandered into math problems, mathematical calculations. It's only because I started paying attention I realized what my mind did with its discretionary time. <laughs> if you don't look, you won't know either. But when you do look and you see, you have a choice. You can either keep figuring it out or you can let go. And in that letting go is relief. As difficult as retreats are, you know why you come back again and again and again? for a little taste of relief. Relief from the incessant mind, conditioned mind. That's one way we get relief. A second way is when, in practice, you see the defilements arise and you get 
you know, anger comes up, and irritation, and frustration, and disappointment, and shame, and the whole that whatever your whatever your flavor is today, they come up, and when they come up, we're suffering. There's really obvious dukkha, but the instruction is to be with it, to take note of it, to feel it, to really learn from this experience, and in that we change our relationship to it. Just in the effort of practice, we change our relationship from one of being victimized by this emotion to at least working with it while being victimized by it. Or, or when awareness gets stronger, we're actually able to just see it un unfolding, playing out, and often we see how and when it comes to an end. And just having the instruction and the interest, the courage, and the interest, the energy to, to look brings some relief. And when we see the end of this temporary visitor to the mind, when they decide to leave, there's relief. And as the momentum in practice picks up, as it has already for all of you after a week or eight days, we catch, <coughs> we catch the obsessing mind more quickly. We have more skill in working with it. We can let it go more easily. And all of this serves to reduce the amount of dukkha that we encounter. Don't minimize the amount of how different today is than the first day of the retreat. I mean, it might, I know today had its challenges. But if you can remember the first day of the retreat, that was all challenge. And so there's a lessening of the grossness of, or the continuity of the dukkha because we're paying attention. We're developing mindfulness. There's another way that we experience a lessening, if not the end of dukkha, in practice is when the wholesome factors of mind get developed and, and more mature as they are. And the seven factors of awakening, the energy, investigation, and joy, along with the calm, concentration, and equanimity come into balance. And the mind gradually becomes more equanimous, as Kamala was speaking about last night, where the balance of the mind is more noticeable where we're just not battered about by everything that arises. There's some ability to be with that which would ordinarily provoke a strong reaction. And we don't get caught in reaction. We're able to be with it in a more balanced way. Well, that in and of itself is a tremendous relief. Because we're just not adding to the dukkha. Whatever arises, we don't add to it with a obsessive or emotional reaction. We see it. We can see it. We have the steadiness, the stability, even the understanding that we don't need to get entangled in this. We can see it. We have a, a, a more skillful understanding and relationship to it. And so we don't suffer so much. This is a tremendous... You know, as Kamala mentioned last night, when the mind is fully developed, 
in equanimity or when equanimity is fully developed in the mind, it is like the mind of a fully liberated being, just able to be in a balanced relationship with whatever arises at any of the six sense doors. Cool. That's the direction we're going. That's the direction our practice has taken us. And many of you report periods of time during the day where it's easeful, where there's less obsessing, where there's a little joy or lightness or uh, brightness in the mind. Be sure to acknowledge these periods of time. Wholesome states of mind like this are strengthened when you acknowledge them. Unwholesome states of mind are weakened when you acknowledge them. Wholesome states of mind are strengthened. And yet, so much of our practice is kind of done with an attitude of struggling, getting rid of, getting, overcoming the defilements and the unpleasantness. And we fail to see the moments, brief though they may be, of time when we're not struggling. We're just with things as they happen. We're just with things as they happen. Be sure to notice that. There's an additional um, way that we come to realize the end of suffering, and that is through the development of insight or vipassana. Uh, we haven't spoken much about it at this retreat yet, but I want to introduce the topic tonight. Because by seeing our wandering mind, we can intentionally let go. By developing mindfulness, we can get a handle on the obsessing mind and dampen it. By developing the wholesome factors of mind, we can enjoy the benefit of not falling into unskillful, unwholesome relationships with things. And when we deeply see into the characteristic, the nature of phenomena, we see one of three things. We can either see that this that has arisen is impermanent. It's permanent. It's just fleeting. It doesn't last. When the mind is seeing events, conditions, through this understanding. The mind understands that this that has arisen is already gone. It's fleeting. It just passes by so quickly that there really isn't even time to hang on to it. And so the mind doesn't have to let go. The mind doesn't even reach for, let alone touch and grasp that which is so fleeting because of, an under, because of understanding how fleeting and impermanent this is. This provides, or this offers the mind the ability to experience whatever arises continuously without any grasping, without any identification, without any preference. It's just seeing this is the way it is. Not by avoiding life, 
not by hiding from it, not by denying it, but by being fully open to and recognizing its inherent characteristics. It's the wisdom, the knowledge, that frees the mind from dukkha. Or if it's not impermanence that, that is seen, it is the understanding of dukkha. The mind sees that this that has arisen may be painful. If it's painful, the mind is not interested in reaching, holding on to it. It's painful. Or it sees that it's unstable. And it, while it may be pleasant now, it changes unavoidably, incessantly. And so the mind just doesn't reach for anything, no matter how pleasant it appears. Because of, of the knowledge that it, has, that it has the characteristic of dukkha. And remember what I said about dukkha? Who wants to grab, hold on to that? No, when, when the mind really knows deeply, in every moment, this is the characteristic of this phenomena. It doesn't reach, it doesn't hold on. It experiences whatever arises, pleasant or unpleasant, without resistance or clinging, and remains free, dukkha-free. The third understanding that the mind arrives at through Vipassana practice is the mind sees and understands that everything that arises as an experience is conditioned. Just things come together, this experience arises. There's no way that it's going to stay permanently stable or come again even because conditions are ever-changing. It's just a temporary, momentary conjunction of conditions creating a display in the mind that might look really attractive, might look very satisfying, but because of the knowledge that it is conditioned, the mind doesn't reach for it, the mind doesn't grasp it, the mind doesn't hold on, the mind's willing to experience it, however it is, but not hold on. This also opens the door to dukkha-free existence, if you will. This kind of knowledge is slowly growing through your practice. Slowly. Slowly you come to this knowledge, acquiring it bit by bit, moment by moment, experience by experience, that things change, things are unstable, things don't offer security, uh, things are just conditioned, they just can't, can't be controlled, can't make them happen, can't stop them from happening, can't hold on if they do happen. This knowledge, slowly, is acquired by the mind that is seeing things as they are. May not be obvious yet, maybe none of you could articulate it yet like that, but this is the knowledge that's growing in you in the mind. And when this knowledge, when the knowledge of any of these three characteristics is very mature, easily accepted and ever-present, it provides the doorway 
to access the unconditioned. This is what the Buddha is pointing to with the Third Noble Truth. The unconditioned, the realization of that which is not conditioned by anything. It's not caused by anything, it's not made up of anything, and yet it's described as peace. Its characteristic is absolute, unshakable, ever-present peace. It's not impermanent. What's wrong with that? <laughs> what would be wrong? What, what's the fault of ever-present, unceasing peace? Huh. That's what the Buddha is pointing to. That's what our efforts here today are leading us to. The Buddha said of the Third Noble Truth, It is deep, hard to see, hard to understand. It is peaceful. It is sublime. It is beyond mere reasoning. However, it is intelligible to the wise. What we are developing here is the wisdom to see, to realize this for ourselves, as the Third Noble Truth must be done. Each of us must realize for ourselves the Third Noble Truth. And the way we do that is through development of the Fourth Noble Truth, which is the path to liberation. It's the Eightfold Noble Path. The Eightfold Noble Path is what we've been doing here today purifying our speech and behavior through practicing sila, or the precepts. And by purifying our speech and behavior, we temporarily put aside the defilements that transgress against others. We're not hurting anyone. We're not hurting ourselves by doing that. And so the whole field of suffering that comes from careless interpersonal relationships, speaking and acting, not happening. That's a lot of relief. That's a lot of lessening of dukkha. The second noble, the second practice, or the second training of the Eightfold Path is the training of purifying our mind of its obsessions. And while you probably don't yet see that your mind is purified of obsessing, there are periods of time where you're dealing with the obsessing and periods of time when the mind isn't obsessing. And when the mind isn't obsessing, when there's some freedom from the defilements, there's the tranquility of seclusion. The mind is secluded from the defilements. Just as we come here to this remote place in the forest to seclude ourselves from daily life distractions and bombardment, and we get physical seclusion, which is a relief, when the mind is secluded from the defilements, it gets mental relief. And we do that by developing awareness and working with, if not subduing, the obsessive defilements in the mind. But things change. We need a third training to 
really uproot the possibility of any defilements arising, and that's the practice of insight, the practice of vipassana. Because tranquility alone only offers a temporary relief. The tranquility of any amount of concentration is only temporary. It takes vipassana practice to see and to understand this is the way things are. They're dukkha, they're nietzsche, impermanent, and they are conditioned. And with that understanding, we purify our understanding of, of latent defilements that might arise if conditions were supportive. When the mind is liberated from latent defilements, there's nothing in the mind to arise, no matter what conditions come together in the world, in our life, if the latent defilements have been removed. And this is what Vipassana does. It removes, it temporarily removes the latent defilements, and it permanently removes them when the knowledge of the unconditioned is realized. The Eightfold Path is, it's the way, as the Buddha said, this is the way to realize the end of dukkha. And it's possible. And all of our efforts today have been in partial fulfillment of that path. The path is to be developed. We've done all we can do today to develop the path. That's why I can say in the evenings, today we have spent our time wisely. We've really done a good thing for ourselves and for the world when we practice like this. Because gradually we are disentangling our hearts and minds from suffering and the causes of suffering. And to the extent that we do that, as we move about in the world, those that we meet benefit from our understanding. Can't be otherwise. Just as we are impacted by others, so too are others impacted by us. Our work here is a great gift of generosity to others. So thank you for undertaking the practice and listening to the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.